whole planet consider a question of great importance. What happened almost 2,000 years ago on that first Easter? There have been many people who have denied the historical accuracy of the four biblical writers who give precise details of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And so they've denied that any event like this ever happened. But since the evidence external to the scriptures for the life and death of Jesus is so strong, nowadays they usually just say, oh, he didn't raise from the dead. It's all just a story, you know, concocted by the apostles to build power or money-making structures for themselves, something like that. For us, the patent absurdity of these statements, well, it just leads us to ignore them today. We're not going to talk about them. Then there are those who say, this whole idea of Jesus getting up from the grave is ridiculous. It's impossible to come alive after you've been dead for three days. Well, of course it's impossible. That's the whole point. (laughs) There is no naturalistic explanation that works. The claim is to the supernatural that there is a supernatural dimension in that, in some way, Jesus was a part of it. So, since some deny the supernatural out of hand, <laughs> they just say, well, he probably never really died, blah, blah, blah. You know. We're not going to worry about any of that silliness today. If you do have unanswered questions about any of these thoughts, you know, feel free to see me afterwards. I'll do my best to... To satisfy your intellectual uncertainties. (laughs) Often on this special Sunday, those who do believe consider the cost of the crucifixion in human terms. The pain Jesus suffered before and on the cross physically. You know, the crown of thorns, the nails, the spear in his side. Emotionally, the betrayal, the abandonment, the rejection, the humiliation. These are all valid subjects for consideration. But today I'd like us to contemplate something different. Something the Apostle Paul mentioned in his letter to the church at Philippi. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Emptied himself. Took the form of a servant, born in the likeness of men, human form. He humbled himself, becoming obedient all the way to death, even death on a cross. In what way did this one, having and living in the form of God, empty himself? Well, we'd better get a solid foundation here. He was God. As John wrote, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He, John personifies the Logos, It's not what is the word, but who is the word. The word, he says, is a person. John's point is that he is separate, transcendent, technically, 
from God the Father. A person separate from God, but at the same time, God. (laughs) Jews of that day reading this would probably be confused, and if they understood, very angry. There is only one God. To them, it's simple. One God means one person. Not two, like John is here saying. And we can kind of understand their confusion when we read the most critical for the Jews of all Old Testament scriptures. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But is one numerical? (laughs) Or is it in some other way descriptive? Now, understand, by the way, that there can logically be only one infinite eternal God. Logically, you can't do it any other way. So, So what can this mean? Well, listen to how the NLT renders this verse into English, and maybe you'll get an idea of what's going on here. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You see, the the Hebrew word for one can also mean unique, without parallel or peer, one of a kind. Okay? Centuries ago, not long after that first Easter, someone worked this out with a nice, clear visual. God is one, the Lord alone. No problem, we've got that. The Father is God, of course. We've always known that, and Jesus said it too. The Son is God. Well, that's particularly easy to remember today. (laughs) He rose from the grave, right? The disciples, including John, walked with him. They knew he was God. Also, the Father called him the unique Son, so no problem. The Holy Spirit is God. That's right. Jesus introduced him to us, well, to his disciples and us, and Peter directly referred to him as God. And many other scriptures assure us of this truth. This is all clear in the Bible. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, each and all God. We don't have a problem with any of this, except for this. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. How can there be one God and three obviously distinct persons? Theologians say it this way, God is one as to essence, three as to persons. Before the Word, Jesus Christ, lived on earth, no one had considered whether the one God in essence could be simultaneously three persons. And okay, it kind of boggles the mind even now. <laughs> Come on, we are each one in essence, nature, and also one in person. True? One essence equals one person. A straightforward correlation. No? When we see one essence, body, in our case, with multiple personalities, <laughs> we recognize that person is mentally ill. Okay? <laughs> but personalities is not persons, and we are not God. Need it be that God must have only one person in his one spiritual nature? Could not three persons share one essence, one omnipresent substance? The Bible teaches it clearly. There is one God eternally existent in three persons Still, though, it boggles the mind. <laughs> it's, just, it's difficult. 
But at least we have a framework within which to understand these words. But now John is about to say what Paul said, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is a serious problem. (laughs) How can the word, who is God, become flesh and live among us? How can the absolute, unique, transcendent God become a human being? It's not like being God is a job where you get to take the occasional break. (laughs) So how can one of the persons of the Godhead, the Son, become flesh and dwell among us? Or as Paul said, be found in human form. Let's join the writer to the Hebrews as he speaks of how this relates to those who believe. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Okay. God inhabits a spiritual realm. Uh, So do angels, by the way, the devil being a fallen angel. But God is interested in humans, flesh and blood. People who do not believe are all their lives afraid of death. And temptation assails us. Satan buffets us. And we sin. (laughs) So we know death is the natural consequence of our lives. But he, the person of the Son would not leave us where we deserve to be, wallowing in our own filth, you know, slaves of sin, constantly afraid of the death we know is coming. So he is made like his brothers. He partakes of flesh and blood. And he, like those good priests of old, takes our sins before God. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus, the Son of God, can understand us. He can sympathize with our weaknesses because he suffered through them himself. So now we can approach the throne, the very throne of God, knowing there will be grace, unmerited favor, and we will receive mercy in our time of need. But our question still hangs heavy in the air. God can't stop being God. So how does one of the persons of the Trinity pass through the heavens and come to earth? We kind of get the Trinity. One God in nature or essence and yet three in persons. 
But now, all the biblical writers agree, the Son becomes a human being. How can God stop being God and become a human? Well, of course, he can't. He doesn't. He added a human nature to his person. The Son became a man. The person of the Son is, always has been, and always will be divine. The person of the Son now is and always will be human. How did the Son empty himself? If the Son is always God, while he's human, well, it's not really fair. <laughs> is it? It's not fair. He can't be really human if all the time he is God, can he? John, at the end of his introduction, said, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. God is perfect. How can we know him? How can we understand him? Well, Jesus has made him known to us. How? We can't see God, but we have Jesus. He showed us God by taking on human form. But we still have this enormous problem. How does the person of the Son, always being God, really experience humanity? How is he really a man, a real human being? The Bible contention, the Bible's contention is so astonishing that it kind of overwhelms the intellect. <laughs> so perfectly did the person of the Son take on human form that at first, he didn't even know he was the person of the Son. Consider our own experience. When did you really know who you were? <laughs> when did you really know that you were you and that nobody else was you? When did you know that? Just to be sure you know, by the way, that's, that's not the same as thinking the world revolves around you in case. <laughs> All of us have to learn we are not the be-all uh, of life, the center of the universe. Although some people don't seem to even get this as adults. You ever met anybody who only recognizes that there's a person around when they look in the mirror? <laughs> that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about understanding that we exist, that we are independent. I mean, think about it. What about Jesus when he was born? I mean, what do we think happened? Did he pop out and say, hey guys, I'm here? <laughs> no, of course not. He was a baby. He cried. That's what he did. He was a baby. A baby who did not know who he was. And Luke gives us a story showing that he had figured out the divine connection when he was in the temple at age 12. Our point here is that the person of the Son, Jesus the Christ, was fully, truly human. He was a human being. His human nature was a real human nature, just as his divine nature is truly God. And as Jesus, a true man, he lived empty of his divine prerogatives. He emptied himself. He was just who he was. The person of the Son, limited to flesh and blood. He emptied himself. Why is this so important? 
Because now, like those ancient Hebrews, we can all be looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that he knew was going to come, he endured the cross. Why? Or maybe we should say, what joy? (laughs) Why did God, the eternal Son, become human when he knew it would mean death, even death on a cross? Because he came to die on the cross. (laughs) Now wait, how does that answer the question? Paul, in writing to Pastor Titus, said that they they were then, like we are now, looking and waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our God, great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He came to die on the cross to save us because he wants siblings, basically. And we are not, in our natural state, fit to be his family, okay? (laughs) No mere human is or ever was. We all were lawless, (laughs) impure, and not vaguely understanding and interested in doing what was good simply because it was good, let alone zealous for good works. Every other human being but Jesus who ever walked the face of this earth needed and needs to be redeemed. What did it cost Jesus to save us from our sin, to help us out of our own filth? He had to empty himself, become a baby who didn't even know he was the Lord of glory. He had to live and die as a human being, die to pay for sins that weren't even his. It's really weird to deal with because he is still God all the time. When Jesus in his human form was dying on the cross, he in his divine form was holding the fibers of the cross together. And the really important part of this, Jesus on the cross was truly the person of the Son and it is person's who die. How could God ever experience death? He couldn't until he took on human form. And then one of the persons of the Trinity did experience death. And it's even more than that. For he took Our sins on himself. Paul wrote, For our sake, he, the Father, made him, the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For us to become beings of righteousness, to have a nature that is right at its core, the Father made the Son in his human form, to be sin for us. And the cost was vast. (laughs) 
far beyond our reckoning. For in that moment, Jesus of Nazareth, the person of the Son in human form, cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is the cost of the cross? The greatest cost of this crucifixion. The rejection of God that we deserve was instead experienced by the person of the Son. God forsaking God. For Jesus is God, the person of the Son. Jesus is man, the Savior who walked in Galilee, who died in Jerusalem. But the greatest news... (laughs) If the eternal son took on human flesh and then died, could he stay dead? No. (laughs) Jesus came not just to die, but also to rise from the dead. And And it gets even more exciting. John, many years later, nearly at the end of his life, saw Jesus in his human form once again. Not weak and rejected as he was on the cross. No, this time in his glorious resurrected state. And oh, it... It frightened John no small amount. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand in me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. He is the first and the last, the living one. He is God. He is the living one. He died and is alive forevermore. He is the perfect human. And he has control over what? Death and Hades, the grave. Have we a lifetime fear of death? There's no need. He holds those keys. Jesus can and will lead whoever believes in him beyond death, into eternal life. And yes, yes, we we deserve to suffer eternal death. But if one is born again, accepting what Jesus did on the cross, they don't die again. (laughs) They have eternal life because he is the living one. Jesus is the Christ, the one who rose from the grave. He is the firstborn from the dead. If you have a relationship with him, if we are God's children, the brother or sister of Jesus, we will, too, through him, rise from the grave. We started by noting that Jesus Christ was in the form of God, but took on the form of a man being obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. (laughs) What did it cost Jesus to free us from our own sins? Every experience he suffered as a human being, all the way to death on a cross, and far beyond that, he suffered the rejection of the Father. 
But there was a joy beyond the cross, beyond the grave. There is resurrection, and not just for himself. He is the living one. It was not possible for the grave to hold him. So his resurrection has to be more than just for him. The joy beyond the cross is our resurrection. (laughs) After which we will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ, the person of the Son in human form. The person of the Son who took on the form of a servant for our resurrection. All those who put their faith in him, the one who is God, the one who is man, the one who experienced death for us, the one who endured the sting of rejection for us. Is your faith firmly placed in him? Today of all days, a good day to make sure it is. Let's pray. Father, the concepts beyond us, (laughs) your Son, eternal God, added a human nature to who he was. A human nature so perfect, he didn't even know who he was at first. A human nature so complete, so true, that he suffered like every other human being, only he never sinned. And yet at that moment, he desired to have our sins placed on him. He paid the penalty that we owe. Ah, what a glorious thing. We don't have a penalty to pay if we simply accept his gift. (laughs) It's pretty wonderful. It's pretty amazing. Thank you for this tremendous gift. A gift beyond any words that we have. But we do our best to thank you again and again. I pray for each person here, those who are unsure. Draw them to you. Help them to cry out to you. It is so sad that people are enslaved by their fears. Father, help them to know there is one who did conquer the grave. He has, as he so beautifully said to John, so such a wonderful picture. The keys of death and the grave are in his hands. There is no reason for anyone to get stuck dead. <laughs> There's no reason for anyone to suffer eternal death. All I got to do is accept the gift of Jesus Christ that he gave on the cross when you did reject him in our place. Thank you, Father, that you loved us so much, that you were willing to do that, that he loved us so much, that he would do that for us. This is truly love.
Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.